if there was a Mount Rushmore in Israel, I believe Abraham, Moses, and David would be on it. As for the fourth, I'm not sure. Abraham was the great patriarch, Moses the great lawgiver, and he was the greatest prophet other than John the Baptist and Jesus, and David was the great king of Israel after God's own heart. And the story of David in the Bible outnumbers in total pages more than any other person except Jesus. I began a new series last week that I called Israel in the Plan of God, which began with Abraham, Father Abraham, who is not only the father of the Jewish people, but of everyone who has put their faith in Christ as their Messiah. Romans 4.16 says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, that would be the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That is, the, Abraham is the father of all who believe in Christ as their Savior and are justified by faith, just as Abraham was justified by faith. Look in Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Romans 4, 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. We're all lawbreakers. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. In his commentary on the whole Bible, Matthew Poole said concerning this verse that there are three things in sin to be considered. First, there is an offense against God which, which needs to be forgiven. Here described as lawless deeds. Secondly, he says there is filthiness in sin, which is said to be covered. The Bible says that God hates even the garment stained with sin. And Isaiah 64, 6 says we're all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness like filthy rags. And then thirdly, he says there is guilt in it, in sin, which is said here not to be imputed. Romans 3.19 says, now that we know, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Guilt is the state of liability to punishment. If you're found guilty at a trial, you're going to receive a sentence. So guilt is the state of liability to punishment punishment, which sin brings the creature before God. You know, one of the offerings under the Old Testament sacrifices was the guilt offering, the guilt offering. In Romans 4, 9, as we continue here, if you're there, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, this forgiveness of sin? The imputation of righteousness is come on the circumcised only the Jews or upon the uncircumcised. That would be the Gentiles. For we say that faith was accounted or imputed to, to Abraham 
for righteousness. How then, how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, the Jews, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. You read in Genesis 17, and circumcision will become the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision did not confer righteousness. It affirmed it. It did not convey righteousness, but it attested to righteousness. Now look in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, you have one of the monumental events in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant, ratified. In Genesis chapter 15, it's kind of a strange thing that, that happens, especially to modern eyes, but not so strange to those in the ancient world. And it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He is not yet name changed to Abraham. Saying, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me you have given no seed. And lo, one born in my own house is mine heir. At least that's the way he was thinking. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This will not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and he said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall thy seed be. And then here is one of the most significant, if not the most significant verse in the Old Testament. And he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord and the promise of God. And he counted or was credited to him for righteousness, reckoned for righteousness. So Abram was concerned that he was childless. He was concerned that his, his apparent heir was Eliezer of his own house. God takes him outside, says, look to the heavens. If you can name the number of the stars, see if you can, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed that, believed it. He believed in the promise of God. And then you read down in verse 7, it here says, And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, that pagan land, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord, God, how will I know that, that I will inherit it? So then God is going to enter in this covenant with Abraham in verses 9 through 17. And this covenant is not a sacrifice. 
animals would be cut in half, and this was the, this was the ancient way. And the animals would be lined up on, on two sides, and then the parties to covenant would walk through that covenant. The blood of those animals was there, and they were in effect saying, if I fail to keep the terms of this covenant, may it be done unto me the same way. But Abram never walked through it. God alone passed through in, the, in that burning, fiery pot. And I believe in doing that, he was promising to fulfill this covenant with Abraham unconditionally. But along with this good news came some troubling news. In verse 13, he says to Abram, Now know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years, and also the nation whom they serve, that would be Egypt, I will judge. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions, which they did. They spoiled the Egyptians, the Bible says. So here you see that Israel would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It was, according to Exodus 1240, actually 430 years. No contradiction. It's just speaking of four generations of 100 years, because in patriarchal times, they lived longer. 400 years plus years in bondage. 400 years ago, the pilgrims arrived in the New World aboard the Mayflower, 1623. First Thanksgiving was in 1621. A lot changes in 400 years. It's a long time. Why 430 years of slavery for the people you have chosen to become a, good, uh, a nation? A chosen nation. Because it would take time to become a nation from 70 descendants to millions of people. And it would take time for them to acquire what they would need when they would move into the land, including the possessions they got from the, the Egyptians. The wheels of fortune turned very slowly in the ancient world. So that's one reason God was going to grow a nation in Egypt. Secondly, it would take time, the Bible says, for the wicked nations in the promised land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and so forth, to reach what we could call the zenith of their wickedness and be ripe for God to use the nation of Israel to bring judgment on them and upon Egypt. After so long a time, God would demonstrate his faithfulness that he keeps his word. Genesis 15, 16 says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God confirms this covenant with Abraham. He ratifies it here. And then this covenant is continued it's continued with his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. In a dozen places or more in the Bible, the Lord God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now remember, God established a, a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. He left, he left Iran following the death of his father, Terah. And, you know, he could have stayed there. 
He went from Ur of the Chaldees. He went northward up into Haran. And Iran was a prosperous trade city, very prosperous trade city. Virtually all overland traffic between Mesopotamia and the western regions of Canaan, Egypt, and the Hittite Empire had to pass through Iran. So it's not Iran, Iran. It was very prosperous. And, and as I said, it would have been very comfortable for Abram to stay there. But he didn't. He moved on. He moved out. And the Bible says in Hebrews, he was looking for that city whose builder and maker was God. It was not Ur of the Chaldees. It was not Haran. And he journeyed to the land that God would give to him. And the promises of God were passed on to his descendants. Pick it up in Genesis chapter 26, the covenant with Isaac. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 1, it says, There was famine in the land. Beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham, when he went down to Egypt, remember, and Isaac went to Bimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, and then the Lord appeared to him now, and he says, do not go down to Egypt. You read your Bible oftentimes, you know, Egypt is, is, is portrayed as negative, and it's become kind of like a type of the world. You know, do not go down to Egypt. Nothing good happens down there in the world. Live in the land that I will tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12, the fifth verse. Through the Messiah, all the world would be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And then it says, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Gerar today is in southern Israel. It was, it was not in Egypt. It was on the way to Egypt. God told them, don't go the, to Egypt. It was on the way there. It, it was in Philistine territory. And according to the analytical Hebrew lexicon, Gerar is derived from a verb which means to drag or draw away. And I thought about that. Not, not quite in Egypt, but close. Gerar. And you know what? The world is always trying to draw you away. It's not content with you in Gerar. It wants you in its grasp. Fully conformed. It drew Isaac away from communion with the Lord who said to him, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I will tell you of. James Brooke in his commentary says, it is true that God blessed Isaac with worldly prosperity while he dwelt in Gerar. But such prosperity very often sends leanness into the soul. And it's a greater calamity than, than a hard affliction. God was also seeking to lead him back. 
back to the land that, that he had promised them. For every well, well he digged, the Philistines stopped. And one he called contention and another strife. I'll tell you, when you're not walking with the Lord, your life is going to be full of contention and strife. And it says, and at last Abimelech said in verse 16, go from us, go from us. So it says in Genesis 26, 23, then he went up there from there to Beersheba. Beersheba today is in, is in Israel, in the Negev area of Israel. It's a population of about 600,000. It's a, a very nice city. And if you go to the southern part of uh, Beersheba, or Beersheba, Beersheba, however they say it, you, you can see Abraham's well. I saw that when I was there before they put uh, a building around it. I think they ruined it by doing that. You know, it just becomes more commercial. It looked more authentic back then, but it is authentic. So Abraham's well is there. And the Lord appeared to him the same night. And he says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So God confirms his covenant with Isaac. And then he confirms his covenant again with Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not only did Jacob receive the promise of his father, but God appeared to him in a dream. And he declared in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done all that I have spoken to you. This prepares us for Moses the Deliverer. It says in Genesis 47, 27, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Goshen is an Egyptian word, and it also means drawing near. And 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 this in this time it's in a good sense because they were drawing near to what God had in store for them. But it didn't appear so good, right? Slavery in Egypt. While God was at work preparing Israel in Egypt for the land he would give them, at the right time he had prepared Moses, the one who would deliver them out of the bondage that they were in. And that takes us to the book of Exodus. Ex Moses was a man of faith, just like Abraham, the Bible says, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Well, actually, it's interesting because if you would read Psalm 90, 
which is called a prayer of Moses in the little subscription at the top. It says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Isn't that beautiful? The prayer of Moses, the man of God. He was a man of God and he was a man of faith. Hebrews 11.23 says, by faith. Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the, and they were not afraid of the king's command to murder all the little ones. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. They perished. So here is this man Moses who chose to identify himself with his own people and to leave, as the scripture said in Hebrews, the treasures of Egypt. Leave it all behind. Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And Moses gave up everything that Egypt offered him to lead God's people, a nation of slaves, to the promised land. It says in Acts 7.22, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to, to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, who were there in Egypt. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and he struck down the Egyptian. And you're probably familiar with the movie, The Ten Commandments, in that scene. For he supposed that his brother would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So God uses Moses to accomplish freedom for Israel. He's portrayed as, as the intercessor for Israel as well. Psalm 106, verse 21 they, that's Israel, forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Boy, so such ingratitude. They leave Egypt, and what do they want to do? Go back to Egypt, because they didn't have everything they thought they should have at the time. They got tired of manna, the bread from heaven. They forgot God, their Savior, to start to worship other gods. They forgot the one who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the, in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. I mean, if you saw that body of water part so that you, you, you and your descendants, millions of people could pass through and then the Egyptians' armies drowned, that would be enough, right? It ought to be, but it wasn't. So therefore he, God said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before them in the breach, the man of God, the servant of God, the intercessor, Moses.
He was a servant of God, according to Revelations 15, 3. It says in Revelations 15, 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing, it says, in Revelation 15, 3, they're going to sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. The servant of God. But, you know, that, that term servant of God comes with an asterisk. We'll explain it later. Because in Exodus chapter 3, he is pictured as a reluctant servant at first. Because he didn't feel qualified to be the leader. But he meets God at the burning bush. That very dramatic scene. And this comes after spending 40 years in, in the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness. He'll spend 40 more years in that wilderness leading the ch children of Israel out of Egypt or out of the wilderness. It shouldn't have taken that long at all. A couple weeks. 40 years because of their disobedience. And Moses himself never makes it to the promised land. God takes him up atop the mountain and he's allowed to see it, but he was not allowed to enter it because of his own disobedience. But you know, he did get there on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? At least a little different way, All right? So Exodus chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the, why the bush does not burn. It was probably an acacia bush or a little bramble bush, maybe a large bramble bush. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And God put boundaries around the mount eventually when the children of Israel were there, when they went up, Moses went up to receive the commandments. But now here personally, he tells them, take the sandals off your feet for where you are standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. No man can see God, the Bible says, in his natural state and live. And he only saw the glory of God in this burning bush. And he was afraid, very afraid. But notice how God revealed himself to Moses, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am with you. 
and the bush burned but was not consumed. Hebrews 11.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. What a remarkable symbol of the nation of Israel can be seen in that burning bush. Burned continuously, but not consumed. Because God has sworn to preserve them as a nation. Like that burning bush, Israel has suffered the fires of persecution over and over and over again. But they have not been consumed and they never will be consumed. Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, an inheritance as you are this day. And in Exodus 3, verse 7, God says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. What a comforting thought, right? Boy, there, people go through some sorrowful thing, times in this world. And nobody can know the depth of their sorrow. You can only come alongside someone who has suffered great loss and be there with them in their sorrow. But you cannot know the depth of their sorrow. But God does. I know their sorrows, he says. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, which is symbolic of prosperity, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All these wicked Canaanite people are there. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, the, the mightiest ruler on earth at that time? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know, Moses had three excuses if you read the whole narrative here. In this chapter and the next, Exodus 3 and 4. Number one, he says, I'm a nobody. You know what's really great? God chooses to use nobodies, right? That's all of us. He says, I'm a nobody. Number two, he says, I have no authority. Who am I to Pharaoh should listen to me? And then he says in chapter four and verse one, and thirdly, that they won't believe me. The children of Israel won't believe me. God didn't accept any of those excuses, and he doesn't accept yours. God said, I will certainly be with you. And that's enough. But I'll be gracious too. I will give you proof of my presence with you. And he did. That rod that Moses had, that became a snake. And then it became an instrument through which God would demonstrate his mighty power. So Moses asks for God's name in verse 13. 
Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What's his name? What will I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Friends, this is monumental. I am that sent you. I am. In the Hebrew text, this verb is in the first person singular of the root verb to be or to become. So a pun is intended there. The Hebrew form of I am sounds very similar to the Hebrew form from which Yahweh or Jehovah is derived. The, per, the third person singular of the root to become. So it has a double meaning. I am that I am. I am that I am focuses upon his transcendence. What does that mean? That, that he is above us and beyond our full experience. That's what it means theologically when you say God is transcendent. It says you, it means you cannot comprehend him. He is above you, beyond you, beyond your full experience. But praise God, he is not only transcendent, he is imminent. He is the self existent one. But he says, I become what I become. And that focuses upon his imminence. He can be known in time and space. Praise God. Jesus declared himself to be the I am. God with us. The transcendent God, imminent with us in time and space. Listen, Israel's history has given witness to God's presence with them, just as he promised. King Frederick the Great was a skeptic. I don't think he was quite an atheist, but he was almost there because of his association with the French atheist Voltaire. So he once asked the chaplain of the court to provide him with evidence for the reliability of scripture or the existence of God. And the chaplain answered, Your Majesty, the Jews. That's what he said. You want proof? The Jews. Between 250 CE and 1948, the common era, 250 BC and 1940, a period of 1,700 years. The Jews were expelled from more than 80 countries. That is a new country approximately every 22 years, friends. To provide a few examples, the Jews were expelled from England, from France, from Austria, from Germany from Lithuania, from Spain, from Portugal, from Bohemia, from Moravia. History shows that a people expelled from its land are assimilated 
into the new land within three to four generations. How is it possible that the Jews have continued to survive as a distinct nation for over 2,000 years, and this despite not one, but 80 expulsions? How is that possible? And the remarkable thing is that the Jews have never been assimilated by those countries. You have Polish Americans, Italian Americans, German Americans, African Americans, but you do not have Jewish Americans. You have American Jews. Big difference. They have never lost their national identity. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. They have maintained their identity as Jews wherever they have gone. They have retained their, their ceremonies, their Passovers. They have their ancient language, the Hebrew language, which was out of existence and then revived, brought back. What nation has been expelled 80 times, lost their national language, and continues as a nation? Miraculous. And then they got the law at Mount Sinai. Exodus 1, chapter 1 through verse Chapter 12, verse 36, their time in Egypt. Chapter 12, 36 through 18, 27, from Egypt to Sinai. And then 19, Exodus 19 through 40, their time at Sinai. But the revelation of, of the law came to Moses. And the charge to the people through Moses. In Exodus, it says here, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant in Exodus 19 and you will you you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people for all the earth is mine remember what i said why 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 do you go back to creation in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth when you want to talk to somebody about why the land is israel's because god created everything and he says all the land is mine and I chose it to give. I chose to give it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. You will be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means separated from the other nations of the world. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. The Mosaic Covenant. The covenant of the law. If makes it a conditional covenant. And Israel's relationship to the covenant would determine their future history. God promised them blessings in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 through 13, and Deuteronomy, which we read this morning, chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. He promised them blessings. These are national promises. These are not your promises or my promises. But he also promised them cursings in Leviticus 26, 14 through 39, and Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. So the majority of those chapters 
Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the majority are, are dealing with the curses. There's blessings, but if you do not obey, here's what you're in for. And it's all happened. It's all happened. Leviticus 26, 33. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land will be desolate and your cities waste. Beginning with the Assyrian captivity in 722 and then the Babylonian captivity in 586 with the destruction of Jerusalem. God laid waste their cities and their land. Deuteronomy 28.64, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. You know what that is a prophecy of? The wandering Jew. The term is diaspora, dispersion. I'm going to go and scatter you all over the earth. And you're going to have enemies on every side. And you're going to have no rest. And in the morning, you're going to say you wish it was night. And in the night, you're going to say you wish it was morning. In Charles Dickens' novel, The Bleak House, there was a policeman who ordered Joe, J-O, a poor orphan boy, who swept the streets for handouts to move on. Joe was so poor, he couldn't even afford an E on his name. But Joe had nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. So he replied to the policeman's order, I, I've always been a moving on ever since I was born. For many centuries, life has been like that. Little boy. Joe in Bleak House. Life has been like that for the Jews. Someone has always been ordering them to get out of here. To move on. More than 80 countries have expelled them. Where are they going to go? Where have they gone? Back to Israel. Back to the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, God tells him, here's the law. Here's the covenant of the law. Keep it and you'll be blessed. And all the people answered and said in Exodus 19.7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's the failure of Israel to fulfill the conditions of the covenant which has brought upon them the curses found in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. And that's because the law was unalterable. Deuteronomy 4.1, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God your fathers is giving you. And then God says this in Deuteronomy 4, 2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, 
that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Don't break it at all. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Don't take anything away from this law. Don't add anything to this law. And you will be blessed. J. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, wrote, God cannot, will not, does not bless those who are living in disobedience. He cannot. He will not. But only let us set out in the path of obedience, and at once, before one stone is laid upon another, God is eager, as it were, to pour out his blessing. Now listen, all that we read there is not for you in Leviticus 26 or 28. It was for Israel. But God always blesses obedience. And God always judges disobedience. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. Then if you're a Christian and you're living in disobedience, the Lord says he will discipline you. He chastens those whom he loves. Here's, here's where I want to end, okay? I think I'm pretty much close to time. And I'll fill in some of the gaps on this as we go along. There's a lot of gaps. It's a lot of history to cover. Ezekiel 11.16 Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, thus says the Lord your God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. fathomable that they should have survived. There's no reason, as I said before, that they should have survived as a nation. But in 1948, they became a nation again. And their wars of independence and the Yom Kippur War and everything that they have you, you may not know the details. I take an interest in that. The miracle after miracle after miracle. David's nodding his head because he knows it's true. We'll, we'll, we'll share some of those things with you as we go along. But I want to read in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 41. Verse 42, Leviticus 26. God says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. 
The land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, which she lies desolate without them when they were in the Babylonian captivity. And they will accept of the punishment because of their iniquity, because even they despise my judgments and their soul abhorred my statutes. But then he says this, beginning in verse 44, and yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses, the Deliverer. The ever faithful God. Listen, friends. If God can take care of this nation, surrounded by enemies wherever they have gone, He can surely take care of you. If he has been faithful to Israel, which he has, even in the furnace of their afflictions, he will be faithful to you. You can trust the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.